I don't know if we've ever done a deal on the really cheap side, to be honest. <laughs> Probably because the market's frothy and there aren't that many deals out there. So we are always looking to buy something really special. And that means on the best corner of the best street, we're willing to pay up for that because we can build an exceptional building that has great architecture. And sure, when times are good, everyone rents everything. But when times are bad and you know times do go bad, you have to remind people that we then have the best located building on the best street, it's the nicest. And that's when you're, you, you know, good locations really shine or in bad times. So we always look for special locations. And that's why you'll see a lot of our buildings are, you know, on the ocean, on the lake, uh, waterfront, on the best corner of a pedestrian street. That That's what we really target. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Today's episode of The Fort is brought to you by none other than Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate broker out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between the 10 and $75 million range? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips to partners who close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Kendall, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really excited about this one. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm equally as excited. I know. Uh, for everybody listening, I got to meet Kendall last week in Miami for the first time in person. And so uh, I feel like I've I've gotten a full uh, week of Kindle uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. So it's been great. Let's get started with kind of your career and, and how you got into uh, starting the business you run today, Wexford. Sure. Uh, so I went to university in, in Alberta, uh, University of Alberta, did a finance degree uh, there out of university, I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers in their uh, consulting department, which was later renamed Deals, I guess. Uh, in the Deals department, I worked in the receivership and bankruptcy areas, uh, specifically real estate and construction companies. So I spent uh, three and a half, almost four years traveling Canada uh, working on real estate receiverships. And that was anything from land developments that had gone under condo or, or apartment buildings that were half finished and had gone under. And we effectively worked with the lenders to help them get out of the deals. And sometimes that involved selling projects. Sometimes that involved finishing them so that you could, you know, get the best money out for the lender. Um, but what I really learned is how real estate deals fail, how developments go wrong. Um, and it was really an incredible education to come into the development world 
on the side of receivership and, and fixing bad deals. Uh, and that was really how I cut my teeth in real estate and development specifically. Can you expand on that just a little bit uh, before we go, we'll go further in your career? What what are like the top three things that cause for bad deals and developments that just jump off the page to you? Uh, bad managers is number one. Bad managers is number two. <laughs> bad managers is number three. It was routinely someone who got in over their head and then lied to the bank about it. And then eventually it all caught up with them. And like, what would they lie to the bank about? Uh, they'd start commingling funds in different deals. Uh, they would get the cost consultant to say the project was further along than it really was. You know, just when, when you're scrambling and, and people had personal guarantees and money in deals, uh, they get desperate and, and desperation often breeds bad decisions. And, and usually it was a series of bad decisions that would escalate to a point where the bank wasn't comfortable anymore. Um, and, and, you know, if, if people took the other route and were honest, uh, they weren't always bad people. They just, they got in bad situations and, and that really escalated things to the point where, where banks would have to step in often. And then, and then we would step in to help the banks. And were they like bribing these consultants to say the project was further along or were these consultants just never on site to really fully double check that they were telling the truth? Yeah, it was rarely criminal. It was primarily it was primarily incompetence or blinding optimism. That was a that was a common theme. Everything's okay, just being blindly optimistic without, you know, looking at their bank balance or or uh, their construction costs. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted there, but I just thought that was yeah. Interesting. No, no. So, so through that role, I uh, and here's where luck comes into everyone's career. I was traveling, call it 200 days a year, and I sat beside someone on the airplane who uh, worked for an asset management firm that represented a large New York-based private equity fund. Uh, and I decided I was ready. It was about 2011. The economy was coming back. So I did the PwC thing right after the GFC. Uh, so we were very, very busy. Um, and then as things were coming back, it was 2011. Uh, and specifically, I'm located in Alberta. So that's a big energy market, which we can talk about later. Um, I decided I wanted to go to the other side and be on the investment side. And I met uh, someone who offered me a job to work for this asset management firm that was managing uh, a large private equity fund's assets in Western Canada. And <laughs> long story short, that asset manager, uh, asset management company didn't have much of a future with the private equity firm. So very quickly, I, I rolled from working for the asset management firm managing this private equity firm's assets, which was about $200 million of development assets in Western Canada, uh, to working directly for them. And, uh, and that private equity firm today uh, remains one of our largest investors. Um, I met my now business partner at that private equity firm who was born and raised in New York City. 
and he moved from New York City to Calgary, Alberta, uh, because we had this opportunity to work for the private equity firm and manage a couple hundred million dollars of development. Uh, so that's a big change. You know, I'm from Saskatchewan, which for the Americans is the Midwest of of Canada, prairie, small suburban city of 200,000 people. And Sam, my business partner, is from New York City. And uh, and that gives us a good, varied perspective on everything, uh, very different upbringings. And uh, so we moved to Calgary. He moved to Calgary and uh, we took over this development uh, portfolio uh, as employees of the private equity firm. And so you, so you took over that portfolio as, as uh, employees of the private equity firm. And then did you eventually just take those assets and kind of spin them out? And that's what kind of launched Wexford? Yeah. So for three years, we, uh, we developed uh, as employees. We, and, and these were wide ranging assets. This was everything from a 300 acre farm field up in, in a, an oil and gas town to downtown Calgary high rise future high-rise sites that was currently a parking lot. So, I mean, these were varied assets. And so from 2011 to 2014, we uh, did our own land development, a couple hundred million dollars worth. We partnered with experienced developers in areas where we weren't as experienced. Um, We built a couple hundred thousand feet of retail. We built a high-rise apartment building with with a partner uh, so, so we did a mixture of partnering because we had the equity and developing our own, depending on where Sam and my experience was. And, uh, and we did that for three years, 2011 to 2014 in Alberta was a very good time. I mean, 2014 oil was hitting a hundred dollars before it crashed. Uh, so we, we had decided that by the end of 2014, we wanted to spin off and create our own development company. But what we did was take some of what we call the legacy assets that we were working on and roll them into our new business. And that gave us the the start we needed to start our development company, uh, you know, to have some ongoing fees to to pay ourselves and our people. Um, And that was really what kickstarted the development company for us. You need fees to pay people, don't you, Kendall? You do. You are uh, <laughs> you are the most articulate when it comes to that. Um, I think today a big part of the theme of this episode will just you know you're the first um, gentleman I've had from Canada, and you kind of so we'll talk a lot about Canada versus America. You obviously have experience, but you kind of started by saying um, that you know your partners from New York and you were from Saskatchewan, so y'all had kind of different ways of looking at the world. So maybe even irrespective of just real estate, what are some of the main differences between Canada and America, maybe culturally or just things that are very obvious to you that the average American just would not even con- you know know or consider without having lived there? You know, I, I saw that question on Twitter a lot. Um, there isn't that big of a difference. Yeah. It's very similar. Um, we have, we have access to some different debt features on multifamily. Uh, we can often get a little more leverage. Cap rates used to be lower here uh, until the recent post COVID craze of America. Uh, but honestly, there isn't a difference. You know, we are now we have shifted from doing all these asset classes to 
being multifamily and a bit of industrial. And we build really nice stuff, whether it's in Phoenix, Flagstaff, Florida, Canada, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone likes nice real estate and that's what we build. So I don't find significant differences. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there a change? Is there differences in like the tax codes or anything there? Or is it again, pretty much the same, maybe just different percentage rates? No, the tax codes are, are drastically different. Um, but again, that's just paying good lawyers and good accountants to figure out structures. Yeah, yeah. Um, so certainly the, when we have American investors in Canadian deals or Canadian investors in U.S. deals, certainly it matters if we have LPs or LLCs as our special purpose vehicles. But uh, those are all nuances that, that we figure out pretty easily. Um, and, and then, you know, it's water under the bridge. We move forward and build our real estate once we have the most efficient tax structure. Got it. Okay. Th- let's just kind of go into a project that you're maybe pick a project that you're working on in Canada. Um, and again, I'm not going to spend the whole time relating to America, but as far as even getting project approval in these, in these pre-development, uh, pipelines that, that you have in these timelines, uh, is it harder? You're working in some of these beautiful areas. I would imagine it's, you know, there's not a lot of supply for what you've built. So it's, you know, it's supply constricted. You're having to do a pretty masterful job to get some of these done. So walk me through kind of what a pre-development process looks like in, you know, some of these Canadian markets that you're building in. Sure. I think I should preface that with the fact that we are always building in urban infill locations. So established neighborhoods with strong community associations, uh, with a lot of people on the neighborhood Facebook page, uh, with a lot of opinions and often a lot of misinformation. So that is not a Canada-US thing. That happens in every market we enter in on both sides of the border. We do a very good job of community engagement. So when we tie up a site, uh, we immediately reach out to the neighborhood groups, the counselors, the planning department. You know, I personally go have coffee with any neighbor that may look at our future building and walk them through the drawings and our architecture. Uh, so that is our first step. We, we, hear, we hear people out. We try to make changes. You know, people may have uh, something they don't want to stare at, or they might not like the corner of our building, or they might want some landscaping benches, little things like that, that can help make the neighbors happy. That's where we always start. And that's different. A lot of developers do that well, but a lot of developers do that very poorly, um, where they just design a building, shove it down the throats of a neighborhood and try to get it approved. And, And we take a very holistic approach to engaging everyone involved. And and that's usually a six-month process for us before we even start getting the drawings into the city for approvals. And when you're talking to somebody that, you know, lives, you know, in the area, but has really, you can tell, no true development experience, and they're telling you, Kendall, beautiful building, but I don't like that corner. And you in the back of your head might be thinking, you know, understood, but maybe you're not really familiar with, you know, real estate or development. If you were more educated, maybe you would like the corner. 
I guess the question's more like, how do you handle opinions? And I did this very poorly when I was developing. I always took it like personally. But how do you handle opinions when they're coming at you, you know, not necessarily with like this, you know, education of real estate, but more of just this like emotional opinion? How do you think about that? Well, I mean, a lot of the opinions we get are good. So we we like to take those into account. You know, there's neighbors who've lived there for 50 years, 70 years. They get the neighborhood. They may they may spot something that we design that won't work for a variety of reasons. Um, so to answer your question, we're we're pretty open about feedback. Uh, we do, of course, get some crazy comments and and comments of that that make no sense. But we have to respect that people have lived in this neighborhood for a long time, and we're changing things. And people don't like change. And so one of the things I often do is I I sit down and and this is where a good track record really helps. I show them renderings of our previous buildings and then I show them real photos of our previous buildings. And it's like, you know, this really beautiful building we rendered, we actually built. And here's the building we're going to build. And here's the three buildings in the neighborhood that other developers are building. And it's very clear that our architecture and our building is a lot nicer than our competitors. And so, you know, we say like, if, if this project doesn't work for us on this dirt, we probably sell it to one of these developers. And so working with us, we'll, we'll incorporate your comments, we'll build a beautiful building, and at least you get to look at a very beautiful building. You know, the, this site is getting developed. We are your best option compared to some of the competitors building you know, quite frankly, junk in the neighborhood. Yep. Okay. So, so you, you, you start out with some schematics. I would imagine these are, these are renderings, maybe not even fully baked renderings. You spend six months in meetings, getting feedback, maybe some, do you do any public charrette sessions or anything of that nature or just kind of mini charrette sessions with just private? We probably hold 10 to 15 community meetings before we submit any drawings to the city. Wow. Okay. And, it, and and as each of those meetings is going on, are you reporting back to your architect, hey, here's what we learned, here's a new thing, let's kind of modify or add to or take from? Yeah, exactly. So our our, our development manager works with the architects and the engineers and, and tries to incorporate comments from the community uh, so that when we do submit to the city, we can point to the most vocal people specifically that, hey, we listened, we heard, and, and we made these changes. And maybe we couldn't make them all, but we could certainly make some. So by the time you're submitting to the city, you can look at yourself in the mirror and go, look, we have let every stakeholder that we could find have a chance to weigh in on this uh, opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And one of the challenges, of course, building in these urban neighborhoods uh, is that the official community plan or, or the plan, the development plan the city's put in place is dated. They're often from the 80s or 90s. And so a rezoning is almost always required. And while they may now want density, you still have to go through the rezoning process. So the more you can appease the neighborhood and the less opposition you have at the public hearing, um, the more the city councilors, and that's whose fate you're in, that's that's the people who make the vote, uh, the more they see that, okay, this developer cares, they've engaged, and and they've really listened and heard. 
Okay, so once you've submitted, how long from su- submission submission to city until kind of approval and and permits? <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> um, on average, I would say from the day we put something under contract to the day we're ready to break ground, it's two years. Um, I see Sean Sweeney, he, he's got that down to a year. Um, most of the markets we're in, we can't do that. The, the zoning process alone is a year. Um, there are times where we buy sites that we don't have to go through zoning and then we could get it in a year. But yeah, it's usually about a two-year process until we can break ground. and. Generally, we because we're in some markets that are pretty hot, we, we have purchased the land with cash long time ago. So we take the zoning and entitlement risk. Um, it, it's very rare that we can get a deal conditional upon rezoning. And when, when you buy unentitled and then you over two years, you achieve those entitlements, when you go for financing, are you able to mark the land up at a higher value so you can kind of put less actual cash down and consider that as additional equity or how does that work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, it's on a deal by deal basis, Chris, it really depends uh, how much zoning risk there is. If there's a little zoning risk, you're often paying rezoned land prices uh, in, in many of the markets we're in. If there's a larger rezoning risk, uh, and the market is also increasing in those two years and getting hotter and land comps are going up. Certainly there's a land lift that we, uh, that we would get an appraisal on, uh, that would basically give all of our investors free equity. Okay. All right. So you are building in, in golly, if anybody's listening to this, go to Wexford's website. Uh, these are beautiful buildings. Um, are you, is everything that you're doing for rent or are you doing for sale condos as well? Cause you're building these big, beautiful towers and they kind of look like both to me. Yeah. We only build for rent. We've never done anything for sale. Um, our, we're building for investors that want, uh, to build cash flow. And what is your kind of, can you, we'll take a step back. What is your capital structure like currently? Are you a fund? Are you deal by deal? How, how do y'all capitalize these deals? Yeah, so we're a deal by deal. I think we have about 29 LPs right now. Uh, Every deal we do is with an institutional partner. So that would be an 85 to 90% institutional partner as our limited partner. And then 10 to 15% would be uh, us as our employees, friends and family, et cetera, as the general partner. Got it. And then debt is typically like a, uh, insurance company or pension fund or large large bank? In Canada, there's five major banks uh, and a few alternative banks. The debt would come from one of those on a construction project almost always. The It's generally about 75% loan to cost is the debt we're getting on a development. So we'll put in 25% equity and uh, the lender will provide 75%. We don't play around with MES very often. We're a very traditional 75% debt, 25% equity developer. In the U.S., uh, we will generally go a little bit lower on the debt, maybe 65% and 35% equity. Um, the reason for that is there are non-recourse options for construction 
in the U.S. at that debt level, whereas in Canada, uh, unless you're one of the pension funds with $100 billion under management, non-recourse debt on construction is non-existent. Interesting. Okay. So two questions in. One, why don't you bring U.S. debt into Canada? Uh, there are there are no U.S. lenders that will come into Canada. Oh, really? Why? That we have found. I'm sure there are. But number two, Chris, is the Canadian lenders are fantastic. Um, and besides the recourse thing, um, we have great relationships with them. The rates we can get are fantastic. And because there's only five major banks, uh, they get to know you pretty well, pretty fast. And, uh, and we like those relationships. We are not one to squeeze out a couple basis points on a construction loan because construction loans are risky. Developments can have problems and you want someone you can call and go have a beer with and resolve an issue versus, uh, you know, a JP Morgan out of New York who uh, doesn't know you. I think what you said this in Miami last week, or maybe it was somebody else, but it was traditionally Canadians are a lot nicer than than Americans in a lot of ways. So when I picture you going to have a beer with a, a banker to tell him like, hey, buddy, I, I need a, I need some help. That conversation is probably a lot more friendly than it might be with a guy off of Wall Street or something. Yeah, I mean, I can't name specifics, but obviously <laughs> during COVID, we, uh, we have 100 retail tenants in our portfolio. Uh, a large majority of those are restaurants. During COVID, our restaurants clearly had were struggling. They were closed. Um, the difference in treatment from our Canadian lenders versus our U.S. lenders was fairly drastic, and uh, and I think that's that's a little bit the nature of the Canadian lending field being so small. Like they they don't want a bad reputation either. Um, and yeah, I think Canadians are just, uh, they, they do business a little differently. And so that, that is a difference. They're less, especially banks, they're less inclined to push things into receivership or bankruptcy or foreclosure, uh, than American banks would be. Loaded question, but any idea why that is, is it just a cultural thing or, you know, is there different incentives in place? I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's cultural for sure. But as I mentioned before, it's a small market. And uh, and so you, you, you have to be really careful on both sides. Um, you have to be careful on the developer side to not screw over a lender. And on the lender side, you need a good reputation with developers. Got it. One more on, on recourse. So how how's this recourse set up? I mean, these you're getting seventy five percent loan to cost, but these are big loans. These are hundred probably hundred million dollar plus loans on some of these deals. Uh, how's the recourse set up? Clearly, Kendall, you don't want to totally put that all on on your world. Um, so how does personal recourse in Canada work, or at least for your deals? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good question. We when we started, clearly we didn't have the balance sheet to personally guarantee these. 30 to $80 million construction loans. Um, and, and so we were very honest and upfront with our LP partners. This is a great deal, but we can't guarantee these loans. And so we went into the deal with the LP expecting to guarantee the loan. Um, 
And they would generally charge a fee for that, of course, and that's fine. Uh, today, on, on some of our smaller developments, we guarantee the loan. Uh, but on some of the larger developments, uh, we still have our LPs uh, guarantee some of the loan and we'll take some. Uh, really, it's on a deal-by-deal basis. But in Canada, the loan guarantees are 100% of the construction loan. So if it's a $50 million construction loan, you have to personally guarantee that $50 million loan. Generally, there's a threshold on liquid assets versus illiquid assets. Um, but you have to guarantee 100% of the construction loan on every deal. Got it. Okay. And then um, on, on these high rises that you're building, is uh, is parking kind of the same uh, to the same standard that you would see in urban infill markets in America? Or do are the Canadians thinking differently about parking? That is a deal by deal, city by city metric. Uh, we have markets both in the U.S. and Canada, so we're in about, I think, ten cities now uh, that will that will grow quickly here. But some markets want one point five to one parking. Some markets want two two stalls per unit parking. We've done we've done buildings as low as 0.3 stalls per unit. Um, so it depends on everything from uh, city policies all the way down to neighborhood policies. We have a building in Edmonton, Alberta, that is on a main pedestrian street that has a zero parking requirement. Um, the city I'm in right now, Calgary, they just eliminated all parking requirements on all new developments. So they're leaving it up to the developer. Um, I've been very vocal about this. I don't think parking requirements should be in the city's hands. Uh, when you buy a house, you don't own the street in front of it. You don't own the right to park in front of your home. That is a public street. Um, there's a misconception that just because you live there and you park on the street, no one else can come and park on the street. Um, now, we hope when we build buildings, we we build enough parking, but we're also future-proofing buildings. Um, we think there'll be less cars in the world, especially in urban locations in 10 or 15 years. Uh, so we don't want to overpark. And parking is very expensive to develop. It is never accretive to a project. Uh, so we try to make a decision based on market, uh, how many units we think will fill, and uh, and we develop parking accordingly. And that is often the most contentious issue in our rezonings. Yep. All development starts with parking. And it's just like you said, like the, the future is kind of promising us less cars, yet to date, we're still building for for more cars, um, do, when you're when you're charging or thinking about rates, um, and I guess this has nothing to do with Canada or America, but is there a way to get premium, like extra dollars for certain parking spots, or is it pretty much just you know if you rent a unit, you get a spot? Is there have you is there any way that you're monetizing parking at all besides just baking it into the effective rent? Uh, we generally charge for parking stalls in all of our units. Of course, it depends if it's underground and heated surface, et cetera, above grade, not heated. There's different rates. Different markets have different rates. I mean, we have buildings that charge 200 a month for parking. We have buildings that charge 25 a month for parking. Um, so it, it ranges widely. Um, we are just getting into electric every new building we're building we're electrifying 100 percent of the stalls so 
Um, that's a new thing for us. Uh, and, you know, that's interesting because A, you can provide charging for people, but uh, B, you can charge for that. And so, you know, that's a new pro forma metric that we haven't really evaluated before. And of course, as we heard in Miami, there's new startups that are helping apartment developers and owners monetize uh, charging stations in the park parking garage because you can't, as an apartment owner, let everyone charge their vehicles for free 24-7. I mean, that would be like putting a gas pump in your parkade and letting everyone fill their tanks for free. <laughs> how? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that, but that'd be a cool amenity. You'd say that I'm killing it on rent, but I'm just giving it all away in electricity. <laughs> um, <laughs> how, how much does it cost you? Is it, is it, a, is it a much, uh, is it a lot of upfront CapEx to provide those electrical stalls or is it relatively affordable and you know, do you have even even an idea right now of the unit mi- or the the mix of gas vehicles versus electric at this point in time in your buildings? Yeah, I mean, we're still primarily gas. Uh, however, I would caveat that with the the fact that we don't have a lot of electric charging stations in our existing vehicles. We're we're just retrofitting that, so our new buildings will be ahead of all competitors where they will have level two stations, standard chargers, uh, you know, and just plugins for the, for the trickle charging. But uh, I, I think that will attract more EV owners. Uh, and, you know, certainly the stats are out there. People who drive EVs are, are generally uh, higher income earners and, and those are tenants we want. Um, so I don't have a good sense of it yet. I think that's coming in our next few buildings. Um, and we'll have a better idea. Uh, we talked about the debt for a second. I didn't mention the equity. I know you have 29 LPs, but but generally as a market as a whole, is a lot of the equity in Canada Canadian equity or is a lot of it coming from America or kind of uh, all over the world? A lot of the equity in Canada is coming from Toronto private equity firms, pension funds, uh, Canadian-based certainly. Uh, the, the Canadian investment landscape is very strong. There's some world-class pension funds out of Toronto uh, that are huge in comparison to the size of Canada. And, uh, and so they, there's a great investment climate for equity in Canada. We still have a lot of U.S. equity investors as well. Um, and, and so we, we have a good mix. But I would say our competitors primarily have Canadian equity investors. Got it. I know you're not from Toronto, but again, back in Miami last week, I heard multiple times Toronto might be the best real estate market in the world right now, uh, which like blew me away. Can you maybe just give me from your perspective, how big is Toronto? How important is it? What, what city would you compare it to in America? Yeah, so Canada has two powerhouse major cities, Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver is going on a 30-year real estate bull market. Um, Toronto has had a few ups and downs, but has pretty much been on the same trajectory. Uh, Toronto has a huge tech scene, but is also headquarters to all of those pension funds and investment management firms I just mentioned is the headquarter city to the five major Canadian banks, 
which are very large, um, and, and really is the financial epicenter of Canada. I would compare it to New York, Miami, or LA. Um, it's a powerhouse. People are moving there fast. The market is on fire. We have not cracked into it yet because uh, the unlevered yields that apartment developers build to uh, would not work for our cost of capital. Uh, but it's a city that is on our hit list and somewhere we would love to enter uh, within the next five years. What are they building to? <laughs> well, it depends <laughs> who you ask, but uh, I'm hearing in the threes, uh, maybe in the fours, if you're lucky, unlevered. There's not a lot of room for error. Not a lot of room for error. Now, the flip side is not not a lot of rental is being built in Toronto because the condo market is so hot. Um, you know, you can pre-sell a 400-unit condo tower very fast there, and the margins are much greater. Let's talk about building for a little bit. It is, uh, it's always difficult to develop well, but it's really difficult when there's supply chain issues and, and inflation's running. Can you just kind of speak to maybe some of the experiences that you're having right now and just kind of how you're thinking about the environment as we sit today? Yeah, construction costs are the biggest risk we are facing. Uh, we're, we're finding good land deals. We are raising the money is very easy in today's climate. Uh, construction cost risk is high. I mean, we heard it at the YPO conference in Miami. Inflation is probably double what people are saying. Uh, we are seeing it in everything from the cost of kitchen cabinets, the cost of sinks, the cost of plumbing materials, the cost of bathtubs, flooring. Uh, you know, our, our, a good example is we, we bring a lot of our flooring over from Asia. Uh, the cost to ship it is now more than the cost of the flooring. Um, it's gone from 3500 to 35000 per container. Uh, so the construction cost risk is high right now. We're breaking ground on 900 units next year, uh, half of which will be in Q1, uh, Q2 actually. Uh, and while we have these great construction budgets from wonderful general contractors, we're nervous, right? I mean, they priced it out two months ago and things are changing so drastically that it's hard to predict. So we're building in big contingencies into our pro forma. Uh, I think there's others who are paying too much for dirt based on dated construction cost information, and we'll let them do that and come buy the dirt from them in two years when they run out of money. But uh, construction cost risk is high right now. What are banks saying? Like, obviously, everybody's fully aware. There's at this point, there's nobody that you know doesn't know. Or like, uh, would a lender say on a Q2 project 2022? You know, let's talk about it. And at the same time, the good news is rents are running at the same speed. So you're kind of, you know, costs are up, but rents are there too. Um, are any of these lenders saying, look, we'll reevaluate when we get there. If rents are up, we might just be able to lend you more. Or is that going to have to come out of equity if there are overages beyond any contingency? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, generally a lender will give us a construction loan conditional upon entering into a fixed price contract or a high percentage of the cost being fixed. 
and then a condition of the loan is that. Um, I think the second part of your question was cost overruns. Uh, we generally, uh, if we have cost overruns, which we don't frequently, uh, you know, number one is to talk to the banks, see if they'll work with us. Number two is to go back to investors. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having institutional investors is if things go bad, which, uh, you know, we hope they don't, uh, you know, they're there for you and they understand and, and you retweak things. Um, but we are concerned and we are building in bigger contingencies today on upcoming projects than we would have in the past. Fair enough. When you're going in and looking at a market, you said urban infill, but you're also in, you're in Phoenix, you're in Flagstaff, and those could be urban infill markets. Is there something that's unique to Wexford or just maybe not unique, but a checklist of things that y'all want to see in a market before you enter it? So first of all, we almost look at a market as multiple neighborhoods. Um, there's neighborhoods in a market we like and neighborhoods in a market we don't. Um, we have a few high level uh, ideas right now. First of all, we think that the data out there is showing that 10% of the workforce going forward will be remote permanently. That's a huge portion of the workforce. And a lot of those jobs are high paying jobs, the accounting firms, the consulting firms, law firms. And so we're asking ourselves, where do people want to live? What, what are beautiful places, good weather, low taxes? Uh, and, and that's our number one question right now. Uh, and that's what's driving us into markets that are having really high population growth that we think is structural, not temporary. So that's, that's the first question we're asking ourselves. So that's why we are in Arizona, up in Canada. We're on the West Coast in British Columbia, Victoria, Vancouver Island, uh, Kelowna, really beautiful places. Um, we're still doing things in Alberta, but we're less focused on it. So that's our first question. Our second question when we're looking for land is we want something either really special or really cheap. I don't know if we've ever done a deal on the really cheap side, to be honest, <laughs> probably because the market's frothy and there aren't that many deals out there. Um, so we are always looking to buy something really special. And that means on the best corner of the best street, um, we're willing to pay up for that because we can build an exceptional building that has great architecture. And sure, when times are good, everyone rents everything. But when times are bad and you know times do go bad, you have to remind people that uh, we then have the best located building on the best street the nicest and that's when you're, you you know good locations really shine are in bad times so we always look for special locations and that's why you'll see a lot of our buildings are you know on the ocean on the lake uh waterfront on the best corner of a pedestrian street that that's what we really target let's just chat for a little deeper on that and and and, and to you this is obvious but to some people it might how do you know you're on the best location? Is it traffic counts? Is it a gut feel that you've just seen so much over time? Are there certain metrics that go, I know this is the best location? <laughs> Mostly gut feel. 
Um, certainly if it's on a street with great retail, we walk around and make sure there, there aren't a lot of vacancies. Uh, it's generally a street that has close to the highest retail rents in the city. Uh, there's good vibrancy day and night. That's really important. It can't just be an employment node that's a total dead zone at night. We want bars and restaurants at night. Um, and then we just go hang out for a few days in the in the city, wherever we are. We go ride our bikes around the neighborhood. I'll go stop and talk to neighbors who are mowing their grass about the neighborhood. Um, you know, just getting a good gut feel, going to the coffee shops and sitting there and eavesdropping on conversations. Um, that's really how we do it. And I've traveled a lot. I mean, I travel the world. I've been through Asia and Africa and Europe and you get to see what makes a city vibrant. And to me, it's that 24 hour, there's employment, there's restaurants, there's shops, there's people on the street, there's people living above the street. Um, and, and you kind of learn what works, but largely it's a gut feel. And then the final question is, would I live here? You know, we're, we're, we're a young team. Uh, we're all in our thirties in the office, uh, except for one, I guess, but, uh, would we want to live here because the type of tenants we're designing and developing for are us. Yep. So you, so you find the, the best location and the worst thing you can do at the best location is cheap out on it. If you're going to, if you're going to buy the best location, you got to build the best building, which means in a lot of respects, you got to hire a great architect that that's all that, that knows how to build the cost, but knows how to find it, uh, build as an artist as well. How do you think about hiring architects? Is it the same one for every project, or do you kind of find somebody that might have a unique skill set to that setting and location? So, first, we we try to find someone who's local. Um, often, we're using a national firm with a local office. That's important because they've worked with the planning department. They know how to get entitlements, permits, et cetera. Uh, and often they're well-respected for building other nice buildings. We work with a few uh, that, that we really like working with. Uh, it takes a while to gel between developer and architect. Uh, at the start, you, you don't know each other. And, and eventually you learn, each, you learn each other what the architect likes, what we as the developer like. And every project gets easier and the process gets faster. Um, so we work with a few that we really like that are very well respected uh, and that build really nice stuff. And I, I think they like working with us because we're never the developer to cheap out and to value engineer something to death. Um, we will always spend the money to make it really nice. And uh, one of our, you know, our, our largest LP who... It was our former boss. Uh, he he he's very successful in real estate, and his n number one quote is, "I've never in my career regretted spending a little more to make a building a little nicer." And and that is really uh, th the attitude that is carried throughout our company. We always will spend a little more to make things a little nicer, and we'll never cut uh, costs at the end to to save money. And, and that's the big issue with the development is the last 10% of the building is what everyone sees, but that's when people run out of money. And so they run out of money and the only thing they can do is make everything cheaper to try to meet their budget. 
And then you, you have this beautiful building with great bones that looks awful uh, because people have run out of money and cut costs. And so it's just the wrong way to go about it. And, uh, and we don't do that. Everybody that's listening to this that's thinking about development, re-listen to what he just said over and over and over again, because you are so right. And it's the biggest mistakes I made when we were developing were exactly what you just said, cutting corners at the very end. And even the developer knows it. They, they're they not happy with the finished product. They're just trying to match a budget. And then they're often disappointed with who wants to lease it and what rents they're getting. Um well, that's the thing, because people are making these decisions in a bubble of a spreadsheet, and they forget that after a year, tenants are going to renew. And if everything's breaking or chipping or looks like it's 10 years old already because you use the cheapest cabinets and the cheapest flooring, they're moving out. And then you're renewing and people, you know, they're moving into a one-year-old unit that looks 10 years old and your rents go down. And so it just, it makes no sense to cheap out at the end. Yep. Can you speak at all to when you are early on in the project, um, the importance of uh, the architect and the GC maybe working together and, and all of the engineers so that nobody's pointing fingers as things are getting built for oh, you know, we designed it this way. And the engineer says, well, you know, I didn't do those plans. And then the contractor says, well, I just built to the plan. How do y'all think about getting <laughs> the cohesive to where like you can find who's accountable for things along the way? Or is it um, is it not that easy? I mean, yeah, this is this world is a blame game world. So you have to manage that very carefully, as you know. Um <laughs> We have a wonderful in-house team uh, on the development side and uh, a construction manager who brings significant experience from one of Canada's largest general contractors. So when we're early in, um, we often don't have a general contractor in the room, but we do have our in-house team in the room uh, to make sure that the architecture meets a budget that we have set and you know, our in-house construction manager is spot checking that with local general contractors. You know, he has a big job. We're in a lot of cities. And so he has to understand nuances uh, in different cities. I mean, I'll give you an example. We're building one building where the premium to go from wood to concrete was a million. We're building another building in a different city where the premium to go from wood to concrete was six million. And so, you know, it's just those are localized issues that that our in-house team has to know and, and they spot check through local generals. Once we get into the detailed design, we always have a general contractor in-house uh, on the team already. So then we have, you know, someone who is there with us, working with the contractor working with the trades, working with the architect and the consultants, and they're all working together. So then we make sure they're in line and we don't have a lot of issues. The The issue we, the mistake we made that, you know, I would recommend no one does is we once tendered a project at the very end. So we had no general contractor. We did all of the drawings and then we tendered it. And your general contractor gives you a price based on the drawings, but there's a lot of stupid things in those drawings. And, but, you know, they just want to win the job. So they price it. 
uh, and then you get change order city, or as my construction manager calls it, to change order. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we uh, we try to bring a general contractor in house early that can work with us uh, and, and work with our trades and consultants to make sure that the drawings are close to perfection when we go out to tender. So when you go to a new market, let's call it Phoenix, uh, maybe that's not a new market, but it's not your home market where you live. Uh, is there anything in particular when you're selecting a GC that matters to you besides cost? Are there things that you ask or at this point in the game you've learned that, you know, if if they can't do this or they can do this, uh, this is who we're going to go with? Because I'm not saying it's a commodity business, but if you're just bidding stuff, there's a lot more that make a GC great than just a good bid. What do you look for? Experience, number one, have they built good, unique urban buildings? Um, if they've only built, you know, the cookie cutter suburban stuff, which there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not what we build. Um, we've found a lot of barriers, uh, you know, differences in opinion in decisions. Um, so we look for someone who has significant experience in building what we have built. Uh, and then almost, if not more important, is the team. Who who are we going to get on this job? And what have they done? Because employees at general contractors jump around a lot. And so am I getting a project manager and a site super who have built industrial buildings all of their career? Or am I getting a project manager and a site super who have built multifamily all of their career? And that's the most important because the the name on the banner, it's like, great, you know, the CEO is sitting in his office and they've built millions and millions of square feet of residential maybe, but they're not on the site every day and they're not dealing with coordinating mechanical and electrical little nuances you learn by building thousands of multifamily units. So team is most important to us. Yep. That goes in line with what are the three reasons that uh, a development can go wrong. Team, team, and team, or manager, manager, and manager. <laughs> People matter. Well, I mean, you did a lot of development in your previous world. You you saw a lot of that. I did. Um, I've got a lot of gray hair because of it, and um, I wish I had your temperament. I might have stuck with it a lot longer. Um, the world needs developers like you, probably not so much like me. Well, I mean, you uh, you've made a pretty impressive shift, Chris. So, I, th I think you're I think you're doing great. I, lo I love what you're buying, and I love what you're doing. I appreciate it. It's been great. Um, all right, we had a couple more things. We had a really cool conversation in Miami. We were talking about promote, and you brought up this idea, which is still on my to do list to talk about internally uh, with my team, which was crystallizing the promote. Will you kind of just tell us what you meant by that and why it uh, is important to you? I think it's something that a lot more folks should do. One, just because it's smart, but two, I think you would get more people that think long-term with a structure like this. And I think a lot of the reason why real estate's cheaper, you know, deals happen in a weird way is because everybody's trying to get in and out quickly. And you kind of found a way to have your cake and eat it too. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll preface this with saying this is the power of the YPO network. Uh, the YPO real estate network is strong, and we were facing a challenge where 
Uh, you know, we're sitting behind a preferred return that hasn't changed in eight years. A, a preferred return in the market, you know, is anywhere between, call it seven and nine percent. Uh, but you're building buildings now to much lower returns, you know, in the fives. And so from a developer and a GP perspective, you're not getting into your promote on buildings that your investors want to hold for a very long time. Uh, you're not getting into your promote for a long time. You know, it used to be you'd get into it in the first few years and now it could be year seven to 10. And so that was an issue we were facing that I posed to some other uh, YPO members. And, and one of them suggested the, the promote crystallization. And so what the promote crystallization does is it's a clause in your agreement between the GP and the LP that states you can, any, now the terms are different in every crystallization clause, but the high level, the, the high level idea is you can pick a point when your building is done, pick a value that's kind of a virtual sale. Some, some people call this a virtual sale clause. And the limited partner will, uh, if it, once you agree on a value, you will crystallize your promote. So it's essentially like a sale. The limited partner pays you out a promote and you are effectively out of the deal in terms of promote. If the value goes up, it's great for the limited partner, but you don't see any more of the upside. If the value goes down, it's great for the general partner. Um, you don't share any of that downside. And so it's a way for incentives to stay aligned where the GP doesn't say, hey, we should sell this, we should sell this because they want to get their promote, whereas the LP may want to keep it forever. And so that's just, it's a way that you can bridge that gap and keep incentives aligned uh, while also keeping everyone happy and, and making sure people can get paid in a reasonable amount of time. I love the idea. To take it one, a couple more questions uh, that I think I asked you that day, but in that structure, obviously the agreement is made with the LP at the signing of the project and documents. Is it just a capital call from the LP to pay out that crystallization or can it be taken through you know, a line of credit or some type of debt instrument? I think it could be taken through a line of credit or debt instrument. That would depend on where the asset is performing and what the debt service coverage is. But the way it's structured generally is a cash call from the limited partner. And I think we talked about this. And I think this is one of those things, again, the power of YPO, maybe we're going to go back and think about it. it on one end, you could uh, crystallize the full promote, uh, call it in year three. And then in that case, I think I asked you, um, you would have cashed out, but you're just going to manage the building. And I said, okay, um, but could you have crystallized only half of it in year three and maybe a quarter of it in year four and a quarter of it in year five to where you can keep participating in the future growth. And I think you were saying like, Hey, I think that's possible. Haven't thought about it. Um, is, is that possible? Did you ever question? Uh, we, we didn't do it because we had never thought of it. Um, but I think we'll do it on our next deal. Uh, if, if the investors will do that. Now we have some deals where uh, investors, invest with us through their opportunity fund in the development and then they roll it into a value fund after and they don't want us in the deal anymore so that's that's where they want to crystallize 
the promote and get us out of the deal because this just rolls into a big value fund forever. Um, so in that scenario, it might not work. But in other scenarios where the crystallization clause is at our option, which is more common for us, um, I think it's a phenomenal idea. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, send me your invoice. <laughs> no, I need just you need to send me an invoice, uh, or I'm going to send so you send me an invoice. I had never heard of the crystallized promote before, but it makes so much sense. Um, yeah, I love it. All right. Um, one more thing. You are, and, and there's a lot of folks that listen to this, and maybe it'll help push this forward. But you recently tweeted that uh, you are wanting to expand. And you're hiring kind of a, let's call it an acquisitions manager to help you get into new markets. Can you speak a little bit to why you're making this hire and how you're thinking about the hire? Yeah. So finding new deals has been uh, under the umbrella of myself and my business partner, Sam's roles. Uh, we, you know, we now have... Uh, over 2,000 units that are going to break ground in the next two years, 500 million under management, and we just don't have the time to focus on it anymore. It's it's a you know you need 60 hours a week to dedicate uh, to finding new land deals, and and we've run out of time to do that. And so we decided we would hire someone whose sole role is to go find new deals, underwrite new deals. You know, we've got the capital there for new deals. We just need to find more of them and keep our pipeline growing because, you know, we're thinking about 2024 pipeline today, 2025 pipeline. Um, and, and we need someone constantly focused on that while we run the business. So I think it's a really fun role. This person is going to uh, get a blank check to go to all of our existing cities and any new city they feel is good or we feel is good across North America, fly there, meet the brokers, pull title, cold call people and find development sites, underwrite them. Um, it's it's a really unique entrepreneurial role for someone that is exciting and fun. And, you know, you get to go meet, go travel around and meet brokers and underwrite deals. So I, you know, maybe I'm biased cause it's our business, but I think it's going to be a fun role. And, and that person will really put us in a, a super growth trajectory. Is there anything that matters to you based on where they've come from? Should these folks have probably been in this role before or been in real estate before, or can you kind of mold them or how are you thinking about that? Yeah, no, we're looking for a more experienced role. We're, we're all, we have a small head office team. Um, this probably isn't a role for someone that we're training from ground zero. Um, we want someone with pretty deep financial expertise. Uh, we, like I said, we have institutional investors and our underwriting and, and deal structuring is very institutional quality. So we need someone who, who has deep financial expertise. Like this isn't just a role where you get to fly around the world and have beers with brokers. I was going to say, I might you come and take that role. Yeah, you need to understand how to underwrite deals and uh, and build pro formas and uh, write investment memos and all that stuff as well. Yep. All right, Kendall, this has been awesome, man. I have uh, utmost respect for the company that you are building and, and your projects speak for themselves. Like I said, everybody needs to go check out Wexford Development. Um, 
Dude, this was great. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. Chris, the the admiration is mutual. I appreciate I, uh, it. I love watching what you're up to. It's really impressive. And uh, you're a great leader. I've learned a lot from following your leadership skills. So thank you. Keep very sharing much. that and keep being open about that because it's uh, it's really impressive and it's really inspiring. That means a lot, man. I'm so glad that we've connected and I hope to see you soon. If at the very least it's next year at YPO, but um, I know we'll stay in touch. Um, have a great rest of your year and, and we'll be chatting soon, amigo. You too. And uh, I guess happy US Thanksgiving. Happy. Oh, wait. Do y'all not celebrate Thanksgiving? Canadian Thanksgiving was a month ago. Okay. Well, thank you very much. There you go. There's, you the difference. Good... There's the difference. We found a difference. <laughs> everyone it's chris here again thank you so much for joining me on this journey if you enjoyed the show please follow the show on apple spotify or subscribe on youtube thanks again and i'll see you on the next episode chris powers is the founder and chairman of fort capital lp all opinions from chris and guests of the fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of fort capital lp this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions the Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.